Hello and welcome back everybody to Expedition History's three-part special on Sir Francis Drake. This is part two of the Drake Trilogy, and if you haven't listened to part one yet, I strongly recommend you do so now. At the end of part one, we last left off with Captain Drake on the 13th of December, 1577, as he led his small fleet of intrepid adventurers away from the familiar English shores of Plymouth, bound for the Spanish-held American Pacific coast under the orders of Queen Elizabeth I to strike at the Spanish Empire where no European power ever had before. Now, I proudly present Expedition History, Sir Francis Drake, Part 2, The Far Side of the World. After sailing for only two weeks, poor winds forced the fleet into harbor at Mogador, now known as Essawara, on the Moroccan coast, and Essawara is a name I've almost certainly botched. As Drake and his men waited for the winds to pick up, a small party of English sailors went ashore and were unfortunately caught in a lethal ambush by local tribesmen. Fending off the attacking moors, the sailors suffered a single man killed in action before driving the assailants away. Suffering a poor first act, the expedition's fortunes turned with the appearance of stronger winds. Resuming their venture southwards, the expedition passed the Canary Islands, a key Spanish Atlantic holding, where they captured six Spanish and Portuguese vessels. One 50-ton cargo ship so impressed Drake and his officers that it was swapped for the Benedict in Drake's fleet. Rechristening his new addition as the Christopher, Drake gave the disregarded Benedict to his prisoners before sending them on their way home. Having reorganized his fleet a bit, Drake and his expedition continued on, heading for the Portuguese Cape Verde Islands located 600 kilometers offshore of Africa's westernmost tip. Hoping the island chain would yield a fair amount of plunder, Drake moved in and spotted a Spanish merchant ship just south of Santiago, the largest island in the chain. Though his expedition was well within range of the island's protective shore batteries, Drake's warships charged under fire for the isolated merchant vessel, handedly capturing her without any additional difficulties. Aboard the ship was a vast cargo of food stores and copious amounts of wine, a great boon for the English sailors, who were already quite sick of their diet of hardened biscuits and water. Perhaps more importantly, however, the vessel was laden with Spanish maps of the Americas, themselves invaluable assets in the journey to come. But the greatest prize of the captured hall was the addition to the crew of Nuno de Silva, a Portuguese navigator who knew the waters around South America like the back of his hand, and who leapt at the occasion to join the expedition. Adding the captured Spanish merchant ship, dubbed the Mary, to his fleet, Drake's expedition seemed like it was destined to be nothing but smooth sailing, pun intended, from here on out. They now numbered six ships total, the fleet actually having increased in size since leaving Plymouth, and were more than amply stocked with supplies to maintain the sailors for the rest of the voyage. Furthermore, with the addition of De Silva and the Spanish maps, the English could travel the South American waters far faster than if they were just left to their own devices, certainly expediting the expedition by good degree and perhaps preemptively saving it from disaster. What could go wrong? Famous last words. When human beings are trapped together at sea for weeks and months at a time, personalities begin to wear on each other, and historical figures are no exception. Almost as soon as the Mary was added to the fleet, a large rift began to open up between Drake and one of his leading officers, the gentleman adventurer Thomas Doughty. Though Doughty was sent by an investor to serve as an observer of the expedition, he was no stranger to Drake. He had accompanied him on his actions in Ireland and had actually befriended the captain, earning his trust, and due to his aristocratic status and powerful connections, was one of the leading figures of the current expedition. As tensions between the two had already been simmering on account of Drake's almost a dictatorial leadership while at sea, a leadership style that saw much of Dottie's influence rested away, Drake deemed it necessary to restore Dottie's power in some manner, hoping to smooth things over. Thus, Drake believed, Dottie would be a good choice to place in command of the Mary, a decision which they would both soon regret. 
Mere days after Dottie's assumption of command, him and Drake would come into direct conflict. The Mary's wine stores were a highly requested commodity by the sailors aboard the expedition, and so had to be kept under careful lock and key. After all, not only did the wine need to last as long as possible for the sake of morale, but crews of drunken sailors tend to be more of a hindrance than a help when sailing in hostile waters. It was therefore a damning surprise when Drake's brother, Thomas, was allegedly caught by Dottie stealing wine from the Mary's cargo hold. Forced to defend his brother for sake of honor, and what is certainly the preservation of optics, you don't want the crews to think you're above your own rules after all, Drake and Dottie exchanged heated volleys of words, each slandering and verbally attacking the other. Pushed to the point of outright anger, Drake swapped commands with Dottie, taking control of the Mary and leaving the pelican to Dottie. If the wine was going to cause so many problems, Drake thought, then he may as well watch over it himself. But it wasn't the wine that was the problem. It was the people. It was their personalities. Both were your classic type A, hard-charging, bullheaded, my-way-or-the-highway individuals with copious amounts of fame, fortune, and glory on the line. Their feud wasn't one that would just go away. As the expedition was crossing the Atlantic, tensions between the two only worsened, stoked in part by the fervor of Drake's brother, an outspoken critic of Dottie for obvious reasons. Eventually, it was decided by Drake that Dottie would, in essence, be demoted. He would be stripped of his command of the Pelican and placed in charge of the Swan, the smallest of the three supply ships. Outraged by the decision, the embittered Dottie began to incessantly complain about Drake to anyone who would listen, bitterly referring to him as the Captain General in a mockery of his self-perception. Such mutinous acts would not go unpunished. Finishing his transatlantic crossing, Drake's expedition had reached the coast of Brazil, and thus began to move south along the Brazilian coast. Along the way, two powerful storms shattered the organization of the fleet, scattering the vessels to the wind until the storm died down, upon which the fleet was forced to spend crucial days and weeks recollecting themselves before moving on. Seeking shelter from the unabating barrage of bad weather, Drake sailed his fleet to the San Jorge Gulf in southern Argentina, weighing anchor on May 13, 1578. Unfortunately for the expedition, although they were safer in the bay than in the open ocean when the storms hit, they were not protected enough to retain their cohesion, and when a third storm struck the beleaguered fleet, they were scattered yet again. However, this time the various officers of the wayward vessels were given a common meeting place should they all be blown apart. On May 17th, Drake and what ships he was able to retain during the storm weighed anchor at the Deseado River Estuary in Patagonia, Argentina, where they waited for the rest of the fleet to show up. One by one the vessels trickled in over the next few days. That is to say, all but one. The Swan. When it finally arrived, days behind schedule, Drake was absolutely livid at Dottie. They had wasted precious supplies and had risked being found by the Spanish and exposed, only for the man to show up late. Incensed, the two threw themselves into a heated argument, with Drake going as far to accuse Dottie of witchcraft, claiming he had been summoning the storms to ensure the expedition's failure at the cost of the crew, an accusation Dottie strongly denied. Following their searing conversation, Drake went back to his duties as master and commander of the fleet. As his vessels had at that point suffered a noticeable amount of attrition and lost crew and structural damage, Drake deemed it necessary to consolidate what men and equipment remained. The decision was made to scuttle both the Swan and the Christopher, keeping only the ship's vital components to repair the others in the fleet. Though the positive merits of leaning out the expedition can certainly be debated, Dottie viewed the destruction of the Swan as an insulting slap in the face, entirely depriving him of all command and stripping him of his honor. Already riding high on emotion, Dottie faced down Drake yet again, his acid words laced with vitriol. 
Drake, fed up with the blatant insubordination, struck Dottie across the face to silence him, ordering he be lashed to the pelican's mast as punishment before tossing him into his quarters on house arrest to await his impending trial. There, Thomas Dottie would stay for most of his remaining days. Far removed from the civilized world, the inhabitants of Port San Julian consisted solely of a collection of worn skeletons, endlessly beaten by the wind and surf, remnants of the Magellan expedition nearly 60 years before. There, in 1520, the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan had wintered his expedition in the protected waters of Port San Julian's natural harbor, hoping to wait out the area's seasonal storms. Suffering a large number of dissenting sailors, the pause in the voyage was too much for many of the men to bear, and while at anchor, Magellan's fleet was racked with a violent mutiny. Squashing the uprising, Magellan executed the ringleaders and many of the dissenting sailors on shore. Their old gibbets, the posts on which the mutineers had hung, still stood silently throughout the area, a testament to Port San Julian's dark past. It was no coincidence that on June 20th, 1578, Francis Drake sailed his expedition into the mouth of that same fateful harbor. The trial of Thomas Doughty began ten days later. Brought up on charges of treason and mutiny, Doughty faced the only jury available, one composed of the expedition's sailors. Faced with a rather dubious testimony for treason from the fleet's lead carpenter, Doughty denied it away, but was hit hard by evidence brought against him that he had exposed the expedition's true intent to English officials who had opposed conflict with Spain. As the expedition had been a secret mission, the leaking of such classified information was painted as a treasonous act against Queen Elizabeth herself. The jury, however, acquitted him of the treason charge, but it was of little use. His public actions aboard ship while the voyage was underway, openly challenging Drake and undermining his command, had spoken for themselves. Thus, to his horror, the jury pronounced him guilty of intent to mutiny, a capital crime. Viewed as a threat to his life and to the integrity of the expedition, Drake pushed for Doughty's execution, a sentence that the jury only reluctantly agreed upon after first looking at the feasibility of other options. To jail Doughty meant someone had to take him back to England, meaning that the crew of the vessel would miss out on the possibility of loot and glory. No man would volunteer for that. To leave Doughty behind on shore meant he could possibly warn the Spanish of the English presence in the area, effectively dooming them all. His execution, as gruesome and unfortunate as it may be, was the only safe option. Seeing the writing on the wall, Doughty made his final wish. To partake in communion with his dear friend, Drake. His wish was granted, and by all accounts, the two were quite amicable, acting as if their relationship had never been tarnished at all. The expedition's chaplain, Francis Fletcher, wrote, quote, And after this holy repast, they dined also at the same table together, as cheerfully in sobriety as ever in their lives they had done aforetime, each cheering up the other and taking their leave, by drinking each to other, as if some journey only had been in hand. Unquote. Having departed each other's company that night, one can only imagine the emotions each man felt, one knowing his end lay near, the other, an old friend, knowing he had brought it upon him. Thomas Doughty was executed on July 2nd, 1578. In my deliberations on how to tell the story of Drake, I debated as to how I should have covered his dealings with Doughty. I could have somewhat hand-waved them, simply stating that Drake had executed a mutinous officer in Argentina and quickly moved the story along. Instead, I chose to do what I could to flesh their conflict out, for a number of reasons. 
The conflict between Drake and Dottie paints a vivid and potent example of what happens when men are trapped at sea, cooped up together for a long time. Personalities begin to chafe on one another and tensions can run high. Life on board an old wooden sailing ship was, in most cases, far from comfortable, and there was really no escape, especially not in the middle of the ocean. Some men thrived, whereas others broke. It's something to keep in the back of your mind whenever we cover such voyages, campaigns, or any other instance involving anything more than a lone individual. The fragments of an always present undercurrent of personal dealings and interactions between the very real men and women that all played some role in plotting the course of humankind. That's what this podcast is all about at the very core, telling the stories of those who came before, regardless of whether or not their names were lost to time. But anyways, I'll get off my soapbox. I'm not a philosopher, just an entertainer. Additionally, getting back on track here, the trial and execution of the gentleman adventurer Thomas Dottie, warranted or otherwise, was a landmark case in maritime law. It effectively established the rule that the captain of the ship was the man in overall command, despite the status, rank, standing, wealth, or occupation of his passengers, a rule that stands to this day on both military and civilian vessels alike. There's your fun fact for the day. Drake, however, in the midst of his expedition, wasn't thinking about any of that. Dottie's execution, outside of their personal conflict, served a pressingly real and immediate purpose. When the fleet had left Plymouth, their mission to raid the Spanish Pacific holdings was a secret, the crew mostly having been told that their objective was instead to raid the eastern Mediterranean. During the expedition's Atlantic crossing, the sailors were all told the truth about their real target, news that few of the men relished. It was believed by most to be a suicide mission, and so morale had plummeted to grave lows and had remained there, only to be replaced by increasing levels of dissent and mutinous thoughts. To have Dottie run about freely, openly blaspheming the captain of the expedition and his judgment, was an invitation to open mutiny, and had to be nipped in the bud as soon as possible. His execution on the very site that Magellan had put his own mutineers to death was a stark reminder to the crews to maintain their discipline, lest the same fate befall them. Having largely suppressed the crew's ascension for the time being, Drake kept the fleet in Port San Julian for the rest of July, wintering out the remaining storms and tending to the ships. Inspecting the hull of the Mary, the sailors found that her timber construction had begun to rot, and so she too had to be destroyed, the crew taking her apart piece by piece as to salvage what parts they could. With the destruction of the Mary, the expedition's fleet now numbered only the three warships, the Pelican, the Elizabeth, and the Marigold. Packed full of what supplies and spare parts they could get their hands on, the fleet waited for fair weather. Spotting a break in the weather, Drake led his expedition out of harbor and began sailing south in search of the Strait of Magellan, a narrow maritime passage between mainland South America and the island of Tierra del Fuego. As the fleet passed through the strait, the expedition was once again pummeled by violent storms, whose sharp winds and powerful waves outright destroyed the Marigold, the extreme weather ruling out even the thought of a rescue attempt. She was lost with all hands. To make matters worse, the tumultuous weather separated the Elizabeth from the Pelican, forcing the Elizabeth's captain, John Winter, into an unenviable position. Relentlessly beaten by storms, Winter continued to sail the Elizabeth west for the Pacific, hoping to rendezvous with Drake along the Chilean coast, but nature's fury proved to be too much. Fearing for their lives and sick of the hardships they had been forced to endure, the crew threatened to mutiny should they go any further, and so, Winter and the Elizabeth sailed home for Plymouth. Standing aboard the Pelican, Drake's expedition was now composed of himself and his crew. No other ship sailed alongside them. No other sailor stood with them. 
that they were alone on the far side of the world. But they were, however, alive. Exiting the strait, the paltry remnant of Drake's expedition emerged in the southern Pacific horribly shaken, but otherwise in one piece. Having endured the strait, the survivors could now boast an iconic title, the first Englishman to sail the Pacific Ocean. This was, however, of little respite for the men. Their journey thus far had taken a toll on them all. Worn and weary, and having only just reached the Pacific, their real mission had yet to even begin. In late August 1578, Drake decided to change the name of his flagship, rechristening the Pelican as the Golden Hind, in honor of one of the expedition's key investors, Sir Christopher Hatton, the very investor who had sent Thomas Doughty to observe the voyage. It can be said with near certainty that the name change was done in an effort to smooth things over with Hatton, a favorite of the Queen, upon Drake's eventual return. Having rebranded himself, Drake led the expedition up the North Chilean coast, anchoring off of Mocha Island in search of supplies. Sending a party ashore, the English encountered a native settlement, part of the larger Mapuche population, who had been waging a low-intensity war against the Spaniards in Chile for decades. The first meeting between the English and Mapuche was positive and productive, with the Mapuche offering the sailors livestock and grain, gifts which Drake's men wholeheartedly accepted to refresh their food supply. The following day, a shore party of 11 sailors, including Drake himself, again made landfall at the Mapuche settlement, this time requesting water. The Mapuche's reception this time, however, was far from hospitable. Convinced that Drake and his men were the vile Spanish, the Mapuche ambushed them. Emerging from their dwellings, the Mapuche began to rush the small band of sailors, hoping to overwhelm and annihilate them where they stood. Putting up a fighting retreat, the Englishmen did what they could to resist the onrush of attackers, making their way back to the landing boat under close pursuit and a withering fire of arrows. Continuing their attack, the Mapuche warriors struck down two sailors, killing them outright before seizing two additional men. Near the point of being overrun, Drake and what remained of his meager shore party were helpless to act as they watched the Mapuche drag their countrymen away out of sight, though their shouts of vain resistance still pierced the southern sky. Driven to the sea, Drake and the surviving sailors pushed their landing boat into the surf under a continual hail of arrows, boarding the craft and rowing with all their might to break through the waves and return to the Golden Hind. Once back aboard his flagship, Drake took stock of the situation. He had lost two men killed in the retreat. Worse, he had lost two more captured, both of whom surely meeting their end in a ritual sacrifice. But he and his men had done all they could, and they would forever bear the scars to show it. Every surviving man had been wounded in the engagement, each having been struck by numerous arrows, Drake included, who had received a near miss to the face and a bloody wound to show for it. Having outstayed their welcome on Mocha Island, the expedition gathered their bearings and resumed their voyage north in earnest. Alone and unafraid, the Golden Hind spent weeks sailing back and forth along the Chilean and Peruvian coasts, giving Drake and the wounded sailors time to recover from their wounds, all the while scouting Spanish settlements along the Pacific noting their size, activity, and defenses, searching for the perfect target. On December 5th, 1578, Drake's expedition, having been tasked with raiding the Spanish in the Pacific at the outset of the journey almost a full year prior, finally began to carry out their intended mission. Spotting the Chilean town of Valparaiso, Drake struck hard and fast, sacking the town with minimal resistance, his raiders taking what they could, making off with priceless artwork and all the silver in the local church. Their greatest find, however, lay in the town's harbor. Seizing a Spanish cargo ship at anchor, Drake and his men were able to capture 25,000 pesos of gold, 
and the ship's entire cargo of Chilean wine, all of which were godsend for Drake's men. Pressing north following their raid, the Golden Hind stopped in Salada Bay, where Drake held his flagship at anchor, waiting for the Elizabeth to catch up, not knowing that she had returned home long before. Riding high off of his successful looting of Valparaiso, Drake wished to sack the wealthy city of Panama, mirroring his raid on Nombre de Dios five years earlier. But the port was sure to be well defended, and his flagship alone was no match for the defenses. He needed the Elizabeth, lest they all get slaughtered. But time ticked past, and after having waited for the Elizabeth to no avail, Drake gave up on his hopes for their reunification and sailed north for the Peruvian coastal city of Callao. Serving as the hub of Spanish Pacific commerce, the port served none other than the city of Lima, then the capital of the Viceroyalty of New Spain, essentially composed of all the Spanish holdings in South America. Drake was going straight for the heart of Spanish Pacific trade. Approaching Callao from the south, Drake and his crew stumbled across a small Spanish freighter, easily capturing the vessel and its cargo. After interrogating the captive crew, they revealed to Drake that numerous Spanish treasure ships had been spotted in the area. This was music to Drake's ears, and after releasing his prisoners, immediately raced to the Golden Hind north in the final leg to Callao. Drake was convinced if there were any treasure ships nearby, that's exactly where they'd be. Arriving in Callao on February 13th, Drake was met with a bustling harbor, packed full of ships, all laying peacefully at anchor. Taking the port by surprise, Drake wasted no time in pressing his attack. Charging into the harbor, the crew of the Golden Hind rapidly closed the gap between themselves and the town. Facing almost no resistance at sea, the English boarded a dozen large Spanish vessels, ransacking them for goods before running them aground. Confused and bewildered by the attack, the citizens of Callao offered little resistance to Drake's landing parties, whose sailors handily took the port. Questioning the inhabitants, intelligence was gleaned that Drake had just barely missed his mark. The large treasure galleon, Nuestro Señora de la Concepción, had departed from Callao only days prior. Heavily laden with riches, she departed the port, heading northwest towards Panama. This information excited Drake, who eagerly boarded a recently constructed pinnace, a light sailing vessel, intent on hounding down the treasure ship. Hurriedly departing Callao, the Golden Hind soon followed, and the pair of ships sprinted north in hot pursuit. About two weeks after the raid on Callao, on March 1st, Drake finally caught up to the Nuestra Senora. Utilizing his translator, Diego, an escaped slave who joined Drake in the Nombre de Dios raid way back in 1572, Drake ordered the Spanish vessel to halt. His words, however, meant nothing, and the captain of the Nuestra Senora, an officer by the name of Juan de Anton, outright refused. Having exhausted his diplomatic options, Drake turned to plan B, and opened fire upon the galleon with a withering barrage of cannon and arquebus fire. The arquebus, for those not too savvy on early gunpowder weaponry, was essentially an early version of the musket, and was more or less the first handheld gunpowder weapon to really find popular usage within Europe. But still, Danton refused to submit. Drake, up in the ante, so to speak, ordered his gunners to switch targets, shifting fire from the galleon's thick hull to the relatively fragile masts, sails, and rigging. One salvo was all it took, the English shot shattering a mast and devastating the Nuestra Senora's rigging. Seeing the damage wrought upon his ship, Danton made the wise choice to surrender, and an English boarding party quickly took control of the treasure ship. What lay aboard the vessel was a mighty fortune no English sailor had yet seen with his own eyes. Numerous vast chests of silver coins, countless shining jewels of all kinds, an exquisite golden crucifix, and 30 
Tons of silver bars greeted any man who poked his head within the cargo hold. So great was the wealth of treasure on board that it took six entire days to transfer the loot by hand from the Nuestra Senora to the Golden Hind. Unable to stow all the treasure in the Hind's cargo hold, they had to remove the stones from the ship's ballast and replace them with silver ingots. English morale, quite understandably, was now sky high. Drake himself was so grateful that not only did he dine with the captured Spanish officers and treat them as valued guests, but upon releasing his prisoners ashore, Drake gave each and every Spaniard a gift from the treasure hold, essentially thanking them for their service. Though he did also feed them false intelligence that John Winter and Elizabeth were in the area, hoping that would reach the Spanish Admiralty, sending them on a wild goose chase and distracting them from Drake. At this point, so flush with wealth, any sane man would decide that it was a high tide to return home. Hell, the Golden Hind was now essentially filled to the brim with riches beyond wild imagination. Their objective of plundering the Spanish trade network had been an extraordinary success, and Drake was no fool. It was time to take what he had and run with it. But where would he go? As Englishmen, Drake and his crew had thrown themselves deep into never-before-seen waters, finding their way off of only rumors and old maps. Unbeknownst to the English, behind them, to the south, the Spanish had finally gotten wise to Drake's actions and had sent 13 heavily armed warships north from Callao in pursuit. But Drake was no fool. He knew he couldn't sail back south through what would certainly be a lethal gauntlet. Thus, he had two possible courses of action. Course of action one was to continue moving north, praying the entire way that he would find the legendary Northwest Passage. Today, we know it as the east-west sea route between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans that passes through the Canadian Arctic archipelago. With modern satellite imagery, it's extremely well charted. Back in 1579, however, the passage was a semi-mythical sailor's tale, then called the Strait of Anyan. Rumors of it could be found in every dockside tavern. Some men even claimed to have sailed it, but never had any proof. It was the maritime equivalent of El Dorado, or the Fountain of Youth, Fanciful ideas of what was hidden in the American interior. But damn it, it just may be out there. Perhaps it was worth a shot. Course of Action 2, on the other hand, was to follow in the footsteps of Magellan and head east. This would be the longer route, as rather than possibly bypassing the Americas to the north, Drake would have to sail across the vast expanse of the Pacific, something not even Magellan himself survived. Through the Indian Ocean, around the Cape of Good Hope on the southern tip of Africa, up the African coast, past Spain and Portugal, into the English Channel, and finally into the welcoming arms of Mother England. It would be a long and perilous voyage, but it was doable. Spanish galleons had already been traveling between the Philippines and Mexico for decades, and, almost as important, it was near guaranteed to throw off the Spanish fleet to Drake's south. Taking stock of his situation, Drake chose course of action number one, at least for the time being. It had the option of being the shortest route home, and with the hind riding low and slow in the water, it just made sense. Why tack on an extra year to the voyage when you could just add a few extra months? Committing north, Drake was off the coast of southwestern Costa Rica when his lookout spotted a Spanish vessel. A small cargo ship, it was swiftly captured along with its cargo of maize and honey, much to the delight of the English sailors. Taking the captured ship to a secluded bay nearby, Drake used the timbers on board to repair the Golden Hind. While tending to their flagship, the English were kept entertained with what, to them, seemed to be a rolling series of exotic events. One party of men sent to find water had evidently taken to hunting in the interior of the country and returned from the outing with a freshly shot crocodile and some kind of local monkey. 
That night, the men treated themselves to the first meat they had eaten in ages. Around the same time, during the crew's stay in Costa Rica, the English sailors experienced what they described as a severe shake of the ground, certainly an earthquake, with some men even reporting that they had seen a tsunami strike in a nearby shore. Lucky to be experiencing what they were, the English soon hit the jackpot. Scouting the surrounding waters while the Golden Hind was under repair, the pinnace, the one Drake had departed Kayawan, they had held on to it since, intercepted a small Spanish sailing ship and seized the vessel with only one shot being fired. Though the cargo hold was barren and there was nothing to take, the captured crew presented something far better at this point than perhaps any treasure. Among the prisoners, two maritime handbooks, known as rudders, were taken, each packed full of written directions describing in detail the Manila-Acapulco route, the sea avenue were utilized by the Spanish treasure galleons sailing between Mexico and the Philippines. But those were just books with written directions, and they were useless unless Drake and his men could actually get to one of the points mentioned so that they could actually start following said directions, a near impossible feat because no one on board had any knowledge of the Pacific Ocean. Hell, they were barely stumbling their way up the American coast. But here's the best part. Not only did the prisoners present Drake with two rudders, but they also presented him with two Chinese pilots, men with extensive knowledge of the Pacific waterways and the perfect guides to lead the English east, should they require it. The addition of the rudders and pilots to Drake's crew was invaluable, each book and each pilot well worth his weight in gold. They were Drake's ace up the sleeve, and in time would certainly be utilized. Upon completion of the Golden Hind's repairs in late March, Drake sailed his men to the coast of Nicaragua to partake in additional plundering of Spanish settlements. These raids, however, were rather unsuccessful, and nothing of note was gained from them. But that wasn't the end of the dragon's run. More than content with what they had, Drake and his men settled for one last raid. This time, in Mexico. Reaching the Mexican port of Huatoco, and that's also a name I may be botching right now, the raid transpired as all the other raids had before. The Spanish settlement was taken entirely by surprise upon Drake's sudden appearance. The English took the town with minor resistance, and looting ensued. Silver and gold topped off the Golden Hind's already filled cargo hold, and the sailors returned aboard with fresh food and drink, fine silks, and more maps of the Manila-Acapulco trade route. Hint, these will come in handy later. It was certainly the cherry on top for Drake's American endeavor. One last score, one final stab in the side of the Spanish Empire. It was now time to finally return home. At Watoco, Drake disembarked all of his Spanish prisoners. Joining them on dry land was the Portuguese navigator Nuno de Silva, much to his displeasure. De Silva, who I haven't mentioned at all since he first volunteered to join the expedition, was instrumental in guiding Drake along the South American Atlantic coast. Unfortunately for de Silva, however, he had far surpassed his usefulness, and he had been of little to no help in Drake's northward movement up the continent's Pacific coast. Now, with the English preparing to return home and needing to carefully ration their supplies, de Silva became just another mouth to feed, and he was left behind. As Drake and de Silva parted ways, the navigator was given one final order. Convince the Spanish that Drake was sailing the hind north in order to take the northwest passage home. If successful, it would serve as a double bluff, a statement deemed so ludicrous that it intends to appear as a bluff but is in fact genuine, and if executed correctly, would serve to kick the Spanish fleet off their tail. The Silver acknowledged the order, and with that, the Golden Hind sailed off over the horizon. De Silva, of course, was captured and imprisoned by Spanish officials shortly after being left ashore. 
though he was tortured and interrogated, he didn't betray his old captain and told the Spanish exactly what Drake wanted them to hear. And the Spanish didn't believe a word of what he said. The Northwest Passage, no one knows where that is. It may not even exist. And you're telling me that is how he's getting home? Preposterous. Drake's double bluff had worked. The Spanish, despite being told exactly where he was going, didn't believe that they had any actionable intelligence on where he may be. Additionally, the Spanish fleet combing the Pacific coast had not sighted a single English vessel in what seemed like forever. Drake had escaped, and they had all been made fools. Disheartened and assuming he was long gone, the pursuit was caught off. If they had any way of knowing, the men aboard the Golden Hind would all breathe a sweet sigh of relief. But this did not mean that their adventures were over. Oh no, not by a long shot. Drake was still heading for the Northwest Passage, and just getting into the neighborhood of where it might be meant sailing far beyond the edge of the known world. Known, at least, to the Europeans. The passage, known at this time as the Strait of Anyan, as I had briefly mentioned, was rumored to be somewhere around 40 degrees north as far as latitude and longitude is concerned, placing it approximately somewhere around northern California. Today, we know that there is no body of water that bisects the North American continent through California. Drake, however, had no such knowledge. Passing the Baja Peninsula of Mexico, Drake moved north, venturing far past the furthest Spanish claims in America and into the cold waters of what we call the Pacific Northwest. In early June 1579, the Golden Hind made landfall in southwestern Oregon in vicinity of Cape Arago. It was the first time since Hualtoco that the crew had stood on solid ground, and they were doing so in a wild, unclaimed land, where no European had yet to ever step foot. Their stay, however, was not a long one. No homes, forts, or permanent structures of any sort were constructed. Their stop was merely a supply run, and after collecting what food and water they could, the men returned to the hind to resume their voyage north. Though it's debated to this day, Drake and his men may have made it as far north as the 48th parallel, popularly distinguished as the northern border of Washington State. Regardless of whether or not they might have made it that far, they had gone far past where the mythical strait should have been, and now, buffeted by strong weather, Drake decided that course of action one was no longer feasible. They had had no luck in finding any passage east, so now they must turn west. Course of action two, crossing the Pacific, for better or for worse, was now their only option. Having turned around, Drake now sailed south, and on June 17, 1579, landed in a protected cove on the Pacific coast of Northern California. The most likely site of his landing is known today as Drake's Bay, located about 25 miles, 40 kilometers, northwest of San Francisco. Disembarking, Drake and his men established a small encampment where they were approached by the local indigenous people, members of a Native American tribe known as the Coast Miwok. Initially wary of the new arrivals on their land, Drake quickly allayed their suspicions, and the two parties began to form amiable relations. At one point in their early interactions, the English noticed some of the Coast Miwok practicing self-flagellation, the act of flogging oneself with whips. Drake, upon witnessing this, believed that the natives were treating him and his crew as gods, and that this self-flagellation was done out of pious devotion. However, modern archaeologists and historians disagree with Drake's hypothesis, making the case that instead of being viewed as gods, the Pale English were instead perceived as long-dead ancestors and loved ones who had returned to the tribe as spirits. Adding credence to this modern explanation, 
Historical evidence from other tribes in the region suggests that self-flagellation was actually one of the Coast Miwok's mourning customs, practiced in the face of those formerly believed to be deceased. We can make our assessments now, but Drake was alive then and there, in a foreign world with foreign people. According to Francis Fletcher, the expedition's chaplain who recorded the endeavor, Drake's stay with the Coast Miwok was a positive one. After earning the Miwok's trust, the sailors were taken inland to visit the tribe's villages, where Fletcher made note of the subterranean lodges, topped above ground with spires akin to the cathedrals back home. While among the coast of Miwok, Fletcher took notes on their curious language, collecting five words to add to his journals, seen today not only as linguistic proof of Drake's landing in the area, but also as the first written record of any of the dozens of tribal languages spoken within prehistoric California. He writes of one occasion, during a meeting between Drake and the natives, in which a number of tribesmen approached the captain and placed a scepter in his hand, a chain across his shoulders, and an elaborate crown of feathers on his head. The exact meaning behind the gesture is unknown, but the significance of the event was not lost on Drake. To him, it seemed as if the natives were proclaiming him as their king, voluntarily surrendering their sovereignty to Drake, who reacted as any good European explorer would. He claimed the entire area in the name of the Holy Trinity, claiming sovereignty under Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth I and every other successive English monarch, and named the newfound land New Albion, Latin for New Britain. The coastal Miwok, whether they were aware of it or not, now owe their allegiance to the Queen of England, long may she reign. And, by all accounts, the English and the coastal Miwok lived together in peace. The two sides traded trinkets and goods back and forth, and the coastal Miwok served as guides for a number of short-term English expeditions inland to explore the surrounding area. Life was peaceful at Drake's Bay, and the English used this time to careen their ship upon the shore, tilting the vessel on its side in order to conduct much-needed maintenance of the ship's hull. But the sailors could not remain in California forever, and with the completion of repairs, it was time for the English to set sail once again. Having given thanks to the coastal Miwok for their hospitality, the Golden Hind departed Drake's Bay on July 23, 1579. The following day, the vessel pulled up alongside the Farallon Islands and the crew disembarked to hunt for seal meat. This was an important task, as it was high summer and the winds were favorable to cross the vast expanse of the Pacific. Any addition to their rather limited sailors' rations was more than welcome. And so, after collecting what meat they could on July 25th, the expedition said farewell to the Americas and sailed southwest, straight into the never-ending blue maw that lay before them. Catching the winds, the Golden Hind punched southwest across the Pacific, crossing thousands of miles of open ocean with little issue. A slight hiccup occurred when the crew found themselves caught on a reef for a few days, but after dumping some extra weight and taking advantage of rising tides, the expedition resumed once again, just slightly worse for wear. Only a few months after their departure from California, the lonely vessel reached the Moluccas Island Group, what makes up much of eastern Indonesia today. Stopping the Moluccas, Drake met and befriended Sultan Babu of Ternate, the leader of the kingdom that ruled over the islands. The two held each other in high regard. Drake was impressed with Ternate's wealth and the respect Babu received from his subjects. Babu, meanwhile, saw Drake as a courageous explorer and talented warrior, and even tried to recruit him in Ternate's war to kick out the Portuguese from their Moluccan trade ports. But unbeknownst to the Sultan, England and Portugal had been allied since 1386, and so Drake kindly declined Babu's invitation into the war. Another fun fact, the Anglo-Portuguese alliance is still in place today, making it the world's oldest active alliance. Leaving the Moluccas, 
The rest of their voyage home was rather quiet and uneventful. They sailed west to the Indian Ocean, past the southern tip of India, until they reached the eastern African coast. From there, they sailed south down the continent and rounded the Cape of Good Hope, Africa's southern tip. By July 22nd, 1580, almost an entire year since leaving Drake's Bay, the Golden Hind reached Sierra Leone, the busiest port in western Africa. Sailing onward, Drake and his crew were now on the final leg of their voyage. On September 26th, 1580, the Golden Hind entered the port of Plymouth, England to joyous celebration. Standing on deck was her captain, Francis Drake, and his surviving crew of 59 hardened sailors. They had spent nearly three whole years at sea, and to show for it, they had within the belly of their ship an overflowing cargo of treasures. Mexican gold, Peruvian silver, Indonesian spices, and whatever else they were able to wrest from Spanish control. Split between the crew, each man's portion of the loot made him far richer than his wildest dreams could ever fathom. The worth of the treasure was so great that the queen's half-share itself was more than the crown's entire income for that year. Drake, already a popular figure, was now a national hero. He had taken the fight to the Spanish and lived to tell the tale, and in doing so, had become the first Englishman to successfully circumnavigate the globe. To reward him for such a stellar success, on April 4th, 1581, Drake was knighted aboard the Golden Hind, and thereupon became Sir Francis Drake. Now worthy of a coat of arms, Queen Elizabeth bestowed them upon Drake herself, one complete with the motto, Sic Parvis Magna, Latin, for thus great things from small things come, joined with the phrase Auxilio Divino, meaning with divine help. Beloved by the people, Drake used his newfound pedigree to catapult himself into numerous political offices throughout the early 1580s, taking a seat in the 4th and 5th parliaments of Queen Elizabeth I, while also serving for a time as the mayor of Plymouth. Using his political connections to push for a stronger navy and the furthering of American colonization, he nevertheless seemed to always find himself distracted by external affairs. And so, when the Anglo-Spanish War broke out in 1585, no one was surprised when Drake abandoned his political posts in order to take the fight back to the enemy. With the outbreak of formally declared war, both sides began to rush the other in order to gain and consolidate what advantages they could. For Spain, this meant unleashing her armies against Anglo-Dutch forces in the Spanish-held Netherlands. The Dutch had already been fighting the Spanish for nearly two decades, as they had declared their independence from the Spanish crown in 1568, and England's overt support of Dutch independence in a 1585 treaty with them was the most direct cause of the Anglo-Spanish War. But with all eyes focused on the Netherlands, the dragon was allowed to rule the seas once again. Leading a fleet of 21 warships and 1,800 men, Drake departed Plymouth in September 1585, bound for the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean, a dagger into the soft underbelly of the Spanish Empire. Sailing south, his first target was the city of Vigo, located on Spain's western coast, which he held for two weeks as he plundered the surrounding area for supplies. Moving on, the English fleet made for the Cape Verde Islands, where they captured the main island of Santiago in a series of minor engagements throughout the month of November, culminating in the sacking and raising of Puerto Praia, the largest city in Cape Verde, a slap in the face of the Spanish crown. Staying ahead of any would-be pursuers, Drake then took his men west across the Atlantic, where just after midnight, on January 1st, 1586, the English fleet reached the outer limits of the fortified Spanish-held port of Santo Domingo. Disembarking 800 soldiers in the dead of night under Drake's second-in-command Christopher Carlyle, 
Drake took his fleet on a slow sail 10 miles down the beach towards Santo Domingo itself, as the ground party made its way to the city overland along undefended jungle roads. As Drake's ships appeared on the horizon that morning, the peaceful tropical air was pierced with the clamor of ringing bells and yelling men as the entire town was thrown into a state of alarm. Townspeople frantically began to evacuate as Spanish soldiers took up their positions in defense of the port, desperately constructing earthen breastworks to serve as cover against the inevitable barrage of shipboard artillery. Forming up for the assault, the English vessels advanced until the port lay just within range of their guns. At Drake's signal, the English gunners unleashed a series of devastating salvos against the Spanish fortifications, taking extra care to focus on the small stone castle that dominated the area. Replying in kind, the Spanish soldiers let loose their own cannonades, though most of their shots fell far short on account of the poor range of the Spanish guns. Capitalizing on his success, Drake pressed his ships further into the bay, advancing upon Santo Domingo as each ship covered the other with continual volleys of accurate, devastating fire, until they got close enough to land that they began disembarking shore parties in a frontal assault on the beach. Hard pressed by the English advance, there was no way for the Spanish to know that it was all just a distraction. Cristobal de Ovalle, commander of the Spanish garrison, observed the rowboats laying down with English sailors and immediately dispatched a force to meet them at the beachhead. Composed of infantry armed with firearms, pikes, and swords, and further supported by cavalrymen, Ovalle was confident that the Englishmen were as good as dead. But just as his men formed up to face the invaders, a cacophony of noise emerged from their flank. Turning to the right, Ovalle watched as the force of English infantry under Christopher Carlyle emerged all at once from the jungle in two separate columns. Their drums were pounding, their colorful standards flew high above them, and the men yelled as they charged at the hapless Spanish defenders. Ovalle withdrew his men to the castle gates in order to keep them from getting outflanked, while simultaneously dispatching the cavalry to ride around Carlyle's men and threaten the English rear. But Carlyle was a seasoned commander and he had ensured that each of his columns had in place both musketeers and pikemen on all sides, which drove the Spanish cavalry back into the town. The English advanced under fire at close range against the Spanish defenders, surging forward at those who dared to stand in their way and returning fire against targets of opportunity. A small force of Spanish soldiers attempted to ambush the English along the road into town, but were quickly shattered with a fusillade of gunfire. Thus, almost as soon as they had appeared, Carlyle's men had reached the walls of Santo Domingo. The two English columns rushed through the gates of the town and hurled themselves upon the Spanish defenders in the deadly push of pike, beginning a fierce melee in the streets of Santo Domingo as the Spanish were pushed ever back against the strong English tide. The offensive only came to a halt when the two columns met up with each other in the center of town. Small numbers of Spanish soldiers were able to retreat to the castle and seek shelter behind its walls, but after further bombardment, the surviving Spaniards snuck out in the thick of night and melted away into the jungle. Among them, Cristobal de Ovar, who left behind his wife and 200 of his own men as English prisoners. And just like that, Drake was now in command of Santo Domingo, which he held until the end of January, at which point Spanish officials paid him a ransom of 25,000 ducats to sail away. A nice payout, considering the town had only held 16,000 ducats in its treasury. Now far richer, the English soldiers and sailors boarded their vessels and made course for their next target. Don Pedro Fernandez de Bustos' heart was racing, and he knew he had to act. The clock was ticking. He was the lead Spanish official overseeing the thriving city of Cartagena de Indias, modern Cartagena, Colombia, the gem of Spain's Caribbean holdings, and he knew that his city was in trouble. 
He had just received a report from the captain of a merchant vessel who had raced southwest from Santo Domingo only moments before a surprise English fleet blockaded the port. Though no one in Cartagena knew for sure who was in command of the fleet, rumors already began to circulate through the New World. El Drake had returned. And it didn't take a papal scholar to know that once he was done with Santo Domingo, Cartagena would be next on his list. With great haste, Don Pedro prepared the city for the siege he knew would come. The women, children, elderly, and all other non-combatants were evacuated from the city as the militia began to muster, reinforced by men from the surrounding area. As the civilians fled, they were ordered to take any and all valuable items with them. Even if Drake and his men were to be victorious, the citizens of Cartagena must fulfill their duties as Spaniards and deny the English whatever they could. Flush with victory, Drake sailed his fleet south from Santo Domingo towards the coast of northern South America, where he then paralleled it west, knowing it would take him straight to Cartagena. But he had his work cut out for him. Cartagena de Indias was a city with geography on its side. Sitting astride the ocean, its seaward side was well defended on account of its well-positioned guns, fortified breastworks, and dangerous coast, sure to turn any attempted naval landing into a suicide mission. Swamp protected the east flank of the city, who itself was located on an S-shaped piece of land jutting out from the coast referred to as La Caleta. The base of the S, the bit connected to the coast, was where Cartagena stood, while the rest of the S flowed out into the water, where the top of the S, and I guess you could say, separated the inner and outer harbors. That bit of water between the top of the S and the mainland, the bit that separated the harbors, was known as the Boca Grande Channel. Are you visualizing it? The geography here is a little confusing, and I'm doing what I can to paint the picture as best as possible via a medium that doesn't really allow for any visuals. Thank you for bearing with me. Sitting on the mainland opposite the top of the S and protecting the channel from anyone who dared try and enter the inner harbor was a small stone castle by the name of El Bocaron, manned by 200 men and armed with eight guns. Located within the inner harbor were two Spanish galleys, Warships powered mainly by oars, each armed with cannons and crewed by 300 men between the two of them. Their objectives were to provide fire support and land additional troops in defense of the main force on La Caleta. This main force, standing between Cartagena and the rest of the S that jutted out from the mainland, was a combined coalition of professional Spanish infantry and cavalrymen, colonial militiamen, and native allies, in total numbering just over 900 fighters all stationed behind breastworks composed of wine barrels filled with sand. It was a defending force featuring a motley array of men pulled from across the colony. Crack Spanish pikemen, mounted noble knights, and rugged militiamen wearing the armor their fathers had worn when taming the land a generation before, all supported by dangerously lethal native warriors armed with poison-tipped arrows. It'd be a tough nut to crack, but Drake hadn't sailed halfway around the world just to turn back. Drake's attack on Cartagena began just after midnight on February 9th, 1586, when he disembarked a force of soldiers by rowboat under the cover of darkness to land on a beach located on the southern end of La Caleta. Sneaking along the jungle roads and creeping along the coast, this advance force quickly went to work, eliminating a large number of Spanish sentries, silently opening up a gap in the enemy's defensive positions. Mere hours after the first rowboats had hit the sand, the landing party signaled to the rest of the fleet. The door was open. Come on in. Clear to land, 1,000 English soldiers, led on the ground once again by Christopher Carlyle, 
disembarked from Drake's fleet and landed on La Caleta, reinforcing the advance party and hurriedly forming up into attack columns. To this point, the defending Spaniards had no knowledge of the English landings, and it wasn't until their advance was spotted by sentries outside the immediate landing area that the Spanish finally realized the threat at hand. Advancing through the surf on account of the low tide, the English infantry bypassed much of the outer Spanish defensive positions, aided by Drake's fleet sailing into the Bolcaron Channel as a diversion. Though both Carlisle and Drake's movements had initially been conducted with little resistance, they each ran headlong into stout defenders. Drake against the castle El Bocaron, and Carlisle against the enemy's main defensive line. Making matters worse, as Drake and El Bocaron began to trade volleys, the two Spanish galleys in the inner harbor decided that their efforts were better put to use by pouring fire into Carlisle's exposed flank, and so rode hard to intercept his advance. Moving towards the main Spanish line defended by some 500 men, Carlisle's soldiers had already begun to come under fire from the four heavy cannons that dominated the approach when the galleys began to open up at them from the harbor. Carlisle now found himself in an unenviable position, and he had to make a decision. Charge straight into the teeth of the Spanish defenses and get torn apart from two sides, or withdraw into the jungle and attack from a new direction, wasting precious time and giving the Spanish time to reorganize. As he deliberated on the matter, a volley of cannonballs whizzed high overhead and thundered into the ground thousands of yards away. Then it occurred to him, the Spanish galleys were shooting too high. And just like that, his mind was made. Riding on his horse, he gave the shout, For God and St. George! And without a moment to lose, the English soldiers under him at once broke into a charge, churning the surf around them as they rushed forward against the Spanish positions, led by the pikemen who leveled their long pikes against the defenders and pressed them home on target, screwing both Spaniards and native warriors alike as additional English soldiers rushed in with sword and buckler, a small shield worn on the offhand. As one column struck the enemy head-on, Carlisle dispatched others to strike from the flank, rolling it up and seizing the seaward side of the island. Thus, after a short but brutal melee, the Spanish defensive positions began to crumble. Though many valiant men fell where they stood, many more Spaniards were taken prisoner, though that wasn't all that Cartagena's defenders had to offer. Witnessing the carnage on the walls, the captains of the Spanish galleys attempted to land the cavalry and infantrymen they held on board, but were met on the beaches by English forces and forced into a rout. Escaping the English infantry, both galleys moved north against the English fleet, but the accurate fire of Drake's gunners forced both captains to beach their vessels under the walls of El Bocaron. The castle now stood alone against not only the strength of Drake's fleet, but now against the cannons Carlisle had captured on the walls. Pounded relentlessly for another 24 hours, the garrison fled on the night of February 10th. Thus, come dawn on 11th of February 1586, an English flag was flying high above Cartagena. Now in control of the city, the English did what the victors of every conflict have done for millennia. They looted and plundered it for all it was worth, claiming some 500,000 pesos in treasure, a boon to every common soldier and sailor whose wages had been paltry in comparison to the riches that now lay within their pockets. Drake held the city for two months, but after deciding that it would be far too expensive of an English colony for the crown to maintain, decided to ransom it back to the Spanish governor of the province. So, on April 12th, Drake and his men set sail once again, having been paid a quarter of a million pesos to do so. Riding high, the fleet sailed north for the Spanish province of La Florida, the modern-day U.S. state of Florida, surprise, surprise, where they moved up the Atlantic coast and raided the Spanish colonial town of St. Augustine, burning down the wooden fort whose paltry garrison had dared to try and put up a fight. Though the rest of the town was also put to the torch, 
Most of the civilians fled into the wood and were able to rebuild over the course of many years. To this day, St. Augustine is the oldest continuously inhabited European-founded city in the contiguous United States. That's your third fun fact from this episode. You're welcome. Having dominated Spanish colonial authorities in three separate engagements, it was high time that Drake returned home. He had done well in the Caribbean, but there was still a war to fight in Europe, and his seamanship and leadership capabilities were sure to be needed. Setting course for home, he briefly stopped to check in on the fledgling English colony of Roanoke, Virginia. The settlers there, suffering from a lack of supplies and fearing worsening relations with the local natives, decided to abandon the colony, and so boarded Drake's vessels for their return trip to England. Two weeks after Drake's departure, Sir Richard Grenville arrived with just over 100 more colonists meant to bring new life to Roanoke. These colonists, left behind in Virginia as Grenville returned to Europe to bring more supplies but was held up by the Anglo-Spanish War, are the men, women, and children who had vanished from the historical record, inadvertently beginning the great American mystery, the lost colony of Roanoke, a mystery that to this day has yet to be officially solved. Putting the New World behind him, Drake and his fleet made for the British Isles, reaching the southern coast of England on July 22nd, 1586. Entering the port of the aptly named city, Portsmouth, he and his men were greeted with a hero's welcome, similar to the one that had graced him some six years earlier after his inadvertent circumnavigation of the world. Referred to as the Great Expedition to America, Drake's triumvirate of victories in the Caribbean once again astounded the world. He had brought riches into the coffers of Queen Elizabeth I, laying his men down with gold once again, and further weakened the Spanish hold on their overseas empire. His career thus far had taken him to the end of the globe and back, to lands no Englishman had ever seen before. He had set foot on mysterious new lands, plundered enemy-held trade routes, and had seen more than his fair share of combat, both on land and at sea. What could possibly be next? Well, he wouldn't be the one to decide, because in Spain, King Philip II, master of the Spanish Empire, the globe's sole superpower, was all too familiar with the exploits of that damned Britain privateer. To Philip, England was an existential threat to Spanish hegemony, and if Queen Elizabeth I was the face of England, then Drake was her sword. Though the Anglo-Spanish War had been raging hot in the Netherlands, Drake's great expedition to America convinced Philip that it was time to open up a new front. It was time to land the killing blow against perfidious Albion. It was time to introduce those hapless English to the greatest naval force the world had ever seen. It was time to unleash the Spanish Armada. Until then, we'll see you next time on Expedition History. <laughs> <laughs>